There's no question in my mind that as far as muscle strength and hypertrophy, the resistance exercise is probably at least 75% more important than the protein level. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hi, friends. Great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today, I sit down with Don Lehman, PhD, to talk about protein. You might be wondering, why is Simon dedicating so many episodes to this topic? Most recently, with Christopher Gardner and Stuart Phillips, this episode with Don Lehman and the next two episodes with Dr. Volta Longo, all on protein. Seems like overkill. Perhaps, but hear me out. Each of these professors are considered experts in nutrition, and while they agree on a lot, there are several aspects of this science that they see differently. How much protein do we need? What protein source is best? Etc. Some focus more on body composition and strength, like Stuart Phillips, some on metabolic health, like Don Lehman, some on chronic disease, weight loss, and planetary health, like Christopher Gardner, and some on longevity, like Dr. Volta Longo. My goal here is to simply understand each of their positions and then to combine that with my own understanding of the literature and human physiology and be able to say, here is my position based on the evidence that we have today on protein. And this is what it means for you when shopping at the grocery store and making meals at home. So in effect, synthesizing the views of these experts along with the scientific literature to give you something solid that you can walk away with so you can be more confident about the role of protein in your life. As always, all references are included in the show notes. And if you want to watch this, you can do so on YouTube where full-length videos of each episode of The Proof can be found. Please do enjoy the episode. This is me and Professor Don Lehman, PhD, talking all things protein. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. 
And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Don Lehman, welcome to the show. I've uh, been a, a long time reader of, of your work and I've wanted to connect with you for a while. So thank you so much for making the time to do this. My pleasure to join you, Simon. And we were, we were just chatting. Um, small world, I've had Stuart Phillips on the show. And if I'm correct, I, I believe you were Lane Norton's supervisor. Is that right? That's right. Lane did his PhD in my uh, laboratory. So he's one of a number of really great students that I had. Yes. And uh, I'm sure um, knowing his, his uh, persona, uh, and I think people would, people would be uh, familiar with him online. He would have been a, a fun student to, to supervise, I suspect. Yeah, the uh, lab meetings were very entertaining. <laughs> I think he has a, a, a very healthy level of skepticism, which uh, makes for, for interesting scientific discussions, that's for sure. Um, Don, we've got a lot of, of things that I'd like to explore with you today, and I'm aware that this will likely turn into an open conversation where we can continue in, in future episodes. It's almost impossible to cover everything that I kind of want to with you in, in one session. Um, but perhaps for listeners that haven't come across your work, um, how would you summarize your, your research interests and, and perhaps the questions that you've really been most interested in sort of trying to answer through your career? Wow, that's a 40-year career, so there's a lot of them. Um, clearly, I'm interested in metabolism. I'm interested in sort of a muscle-centric approach to metabolism. Uh, I think as one looks at the body and you're trying to tailor things, there's really only two tissues that you have to think about. One is muscle and the other is brain. Everything else is sort of there for regulation. Um, I'm also... I'm interested in metabolism, but I'm particularly interested in amino acid metabolism, protein needs. Um, I'm interested in muscle from a functional aspect, but also from metabolic aspect, you know, control of blood glucose, blood lipids, um, you know, all of that then relates to body composition, weight loss, performance. So that's kind of the, the big package of everything. Mm -hmm. And for us to kind of set the stage, I guess, to, to where we're going to go, I think, in this conversation. I mean, you mentioned there metabolic health and the importance of skeletal muscle. And, and I think 
for some people that might be the first time that they've kind of really heard that or, or thought about that. And, and often, I guess, at a high level, you think more of muscle of, you know, helping you do functional things, get up off the couch or lift a weight at the gym. Um, so perhaps we just take a further step into the importance of having a good amount of skeletal muscle. What, what do we understand about uh, the, the amount of muscle that we have, particularly as we age, and how that does intersect with our metabolic health? Yeah, so muscle makes up, you know, depending on your body composition or, you know, 50% of your body, 50% of your protein. Um, and as we age, as we get beyond 40, uh, the efficiency of how the body maintains it tends to start downward. Uh, muscle is a major source of glucose metabolism. It's a major source of fat, fatty acid metabolism. And if you have problems with blood sugar, with blood lipids, chances are your muscles aren't healthy. So we, you know, we talk about them from dietary standpoint or heart standpoint or all kinds of things at fat, body fat, adipose standpoint. But the reality is muscle is really where it all begins. And, and unless you're super physically active, that is on a downward trend as we get older. So, you know, how do you manage that? You know, what can we do about it? Those are all topics I think are really interesting. And I think we can do things to make it better. When we say, you know, a good amount of muscle, and if you were to kind of think about <laughs> as, as we age, you know, often you hear people saying, you know, do resistance training. It's important to, to maintain a, a good amount of muscle. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of assuming that there's a bit of a spectrum when, where you go from sort of under-muscled, where maybe you are putting yourself at risk of some of these um, metabolic negative metabolic um, consequences to having sufficient muscle. Is that something that we've been able to quantify within the research? You know, what is a good amount of muscle if someone's listening and thinking, yeah. well, I'd love to, to, to know if we know that firstly, and then if I can test it. Yeah. You know, I don't think there is any really good number. We typically think of it from the other direction. We think about what's an unhealthy amount of fat. <laughs> well, you know, we think that, well, if you've got more than 30% body fat, then you're likely going to be at health risk. So, you know, that means the rest of it's lean body mass. You know, mm -hmm. what percentage of that is muscle? Um, you know, I, I, I don't have a real number to give you on something like that. I think that um, you really look, you know, and again, somebody who's six foot six is going to have a different level of muscle than somebody who's five foot, uh, and they both can be perfectly healthy. So, uh, you know, the issue is, you know, how functional is it? You know, what are you doing? Are you physically moving? Are you physically active? Is it metabolically healthy? And you can be, you know, both the activity and the nutrition are, are hand in hand in terms of how healthy it is. So I don't think the amount is the key, for, for any individual, for you or me, we could simply say, well, for me, X amount of muscle is probably a good healthy level, but that's probably quite different than what it would be for you. Is this where strength comes in? Is, is strength a kind of better proxy for, for sort of determining our you know, risk of, say, uh, frailty or, or even total mortality? 
I often see grip strength used in the in the literature quite a bit. Um, certainly, certainly mobility I, in the aging literature, which um, functional aging is not exactly my specialty, but mm-hmm. you know, walking, you know, gait speed and ability to get up out of a chair, and some of those are very much predictors of health and mortality. So strength is certainly part of it. Um, I also think a lot about the metabolic aspect, which um, someone can be fairly metabolically healthy and not necessarily be super strong. You know, I, I don't, I don't personally think that uh, resistance exercise is the key to metabolic health, you know, sort of the, the sort of the flip side of your question. So Mm -hmm. I personally think people need to practice some level of both resistance, you know, hip type of exercise, some level of resistance and some level of aerobic because they're not the same outcomes. And, and when you mention metabolic health, um, translate that for someone listening, like what, what, in terms of actually measuring something, um, are you talking like HbA1c or fasting blood glucose? What are, what are we talking about when we mean metabolic health? Yeah. So, um, I focus a lot on protein turnover, so uh, having good rates of protein synthesis, responding correctly. I, I think that's important. Um, I think blood glucose, blood lipids are also important. Your mitochondrial health determines your ability to oxidize blood lipids. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, those are the kinds of things I think about with metabolic health. Mm-hmm. Um do you have the right level of branch chain amino acids? Are you metabolizing your lipids? Are your triglycerides in your blood at the right level? Uh, all of those things are part of that package. So would you, would you say the goal here, from, from your view, the goal here is to have uh, a sufficient amount of muscle, whatever that is for the, for the individual, to act as a, a good way to kind of dispose of blood glucose, to metabolize glucose, um, and at the same time, healthy functioning mitochondria and trying to avoid that, that sort of visceral fat buildup around, around the organs. Is that a kind of decent summary of, of metabolic health? Yeah. I, you know, again, the amount, it's about activity. Um, mm. the, the larger your muscles are, you know, if I started lifting more weights, um, I would convert muscles toward white muscle type. I would have less mitochondria per unit of muscle. Uh, mm-hmm. So that doesn't necessarily make it better for metabolizing glucose. Um, I approach it quite differently. Uh, I, I think about, you know, what's my calorie need? What's my carbohydrate threshold? So there's a minimum need of carbohydrates of around 130 grams per day. We could debate that number. But then I think about you can add about 60 grams per hour of intense exercise. The question is, how do you balance all of those things? Uh, and that, you know, that relates to your muscle mitochondria. So are you doing the aerobic activity? Uh, the strength aspect sort of lets, you know, are you strong enough to do those activities? <laughs> uh, functionally, but the size of the muscle doesn't necessarily lead to metabolic health. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to think about animal research a little bit, the, uh, there's, there's classic things in like the swine industry, uh, where if you over muscle 
an animal, it becomes metabolically incredibly unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very prone to lactate toxicity and things like that. So big muscle isn't the answer. Healthy muscles is more of a mitochondrial and functional mobility as opposed to just big. I know that we're going to focus mostly on nutrition and amino acids, but while we're on this, we're talking about exercise here and and the stimulus, because I find this fascinating, just thinking about, well, what is metabolic health? And if we're thinking about muscle tissue and um, I'm hearing you talk about the, it sounds like quality is, is really important. It's not just the quantity and the importance of mitochondrial function or efficiency from a from an exercise point of view, and I appreciate this is kind of a sidestep outside of your primary area of, of research, is it, is it that HIIT training where you're getting up to that kind of very high intensity, 95% um, of your max heart rate, where you're providing the best stimulus to improve mitochondrial function, or is it more of that moderate intensity kind of steady state longer exercise that you would say is better for a metabolic health point of view from, from a, a mitochondrial point of view? So, so if you look at a, a range of activity, somewhere around 60% of VO2 max capacity is where you're making a transition from uh, primarily using fats, mitochondria, to more anaerobic using glucose anaerobically producing lactate. So 95% of capacity um, would be a very heavy glucose use without producing lactate. So this would be glycogen based. And and so I don't think that's the answer. I think that um, closer to in the 60 to 70% range is where you probably most people would target. Again, if if your goal is to be an Olympic athlete, then you want to train up in that 95 to 100% range. If you're just trying to have healthy muscles, what you want to do is be sure you're simulating your heart rate, maybe up in the 120 range. You want to be doing resistance exercise. Uh, that's sort of the level that is probably going to be maximizing uh, mitochondrial development uh, and not necessarily relying all on glycogen to produce the activity. Okay. Yeah, I think um, a lot of folks these days are talking about zone two training. I'm not sure if you, you've kind of heard that trendy term um, used, but that's that's sort of sitting in sit, sitting in that that zone of of what you just explained there. And a lot of endurance athletes do that um, to sort of, I guess, in lay terms, they say to become better fat burners and to improve their aerobic yeah. capacity um, yeah. and and sort of metabolic uh, or mitochondrial efficiency as they kind of put it um don as we as we age so i appreciate here um what we're talking about in terms of muscle is it's not just quantity and the sheer mass um the quality and the function of that muscle is really important if we think about age-related changes to muscle how much of that is just written in our dna and is unavoidable versus something that we actually have a say in and can intervene and make a, you know, a tangible difference in? Um, aging is a phenomena that we can't stop, but we can definitely alter the line. <laughs> the slope of the line can be changed. Um, we mentioned uh, uh, 
Stu Phillips, he and I were at a mm-hmm. conference last week and, uh, you know, he was talking about the catabolic crisis concept, which was sort of coined by Doug Patton Jones, um, that for most people, we have an aging line, but for most people, aging is a process of individual events where we are catabolic, we're in bed because we have some disease or a surgery or an accident or whatever. And the older we get, the more dramatic those are. And what we know is that once you get beyond 40, that may be a little young, but once you get beyond 40, you never recover from catabolic events very well. You can do lots of exercise. You can do lots of uh, resistance type training, but you always tend to make a step down. And so, you know, there's, there's clearly an aging process. It's been studied in every kind of animal species that's used. It's known in humans. We know there's a trend that way, but you can definitely change the trajectory. And what you're trying to do is protect yourself against these catabolic events too. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of talk about how, how bad a a hip fracture can be when you're over the age yeah. of, of 65 and, and the, the mortality in that first 12 months after a hip fracture is incredibly, yeah. incredibly high. Bob Wolf published a paper a few years back and he, he, I think it was titled something like the underappreciated role, metabolic role or health role of skeletal muscle, something like that. But basically mm-hmm. his point was in, in developed societies, the majority of people reach 65 And after 65, the majority of people die from a muscle problem, from a fall, from a hip fracture, from an injury that leads to pneumonia, whatever. Uh, Functional mobility, metabolic health of muscle are far more important than what most people give it credit for. Yeah. Can I I ask you a question about, I guess, (laughs) lifespan and longevity? It's become a craze, right? And I wonder- I'm, I'm presuming, I'm sort of projecting onto you, uh, if I was you with the research you're doing, you, you could be easily left in a position where you're thinking, why are we focusing so much on extending life and not enough on vitality and getting into our later years, avoiding frailty and actually having high quality years where we, we can function and do the things that we love. Do you feel like the pendulum has swung a little bit too far towards what's the next magic compound to extend lifespan while we may be at a population level at least overlooking some of the most important things that we can do to really improve our quality of life and health span. Yeah. I, you know, and even if you look at the statistics of the last few years and the average lifespan has actually gone down in the last few years. And obviously mm. COVID's part of that. Um, you know, I, I would begin that answer by saying uh, my mom passed away a year ago at 102 and my dad passed away at 97. So <laughs> I've been watching longevity uh, and the issue of quality of life is critical. Uh, you know, I think that uh, both of them would probably say you know, the quality of their life really went down in the last few years. And if you ask them, gee, could, could we extend your life another 10 years? They would both say no. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think 
We do need to start with quality of life. And I think functional mobility, skeletal health, there's all that. Um, the longevity data, I, I actually began my research uh, career, my master's degree studying aging uh, with Arlen Richardson, who is fairly well known for aging research. And we discovered things like the changing of the poly A tails on messenger RNA. And as they shorten, we're less able to make new proteins. I've been studying the aspect of the decreasing efficiency of muscle protein synthesis with aging. So to your point, these are somewhat in our DNA, but we can overcome that with the right kinds of exercise and protein and, and certainly flatten the curve. Uh, and I think that's the issue where we're trying to change the curve to maintain the quality of life longer. I think there's some maximums out there is, is the maximum human life 120 or 110 or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the reality is people beyond 90 aren't particularly healthy. And I think that's where we need to be thinking. Yeah, no, it's something that I think about all the time. I, I would rather live to 90 with a very high quality of life than yeah. live to 100, but have, you know, 15 years of very low quality life and function and be very dependent on on people around me. So I, th I think it's something that... I totally, totally agree with that. <laughs> ...worthy of thinking about. Um, so you just, you mentioned there that, you know, two of the things that we do have control over, exercise and nutrition. And um, we can utilize these in um, various ways to improve our, our functional capacity as we age. Are they the two big buckets? Is there anything else outside of nutrition and exercise that, that influences this in a meaningful way? Sleep, stress, <laughs> fluids. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think there are a variety of things. How would I weight each one of them? Um, you know, I, I put exercise pretty high, functional aspects of exercise pretty high. I put sleep pretty high. Uh, I'm a nutritionist. Um, you know, in nutrition, the single part of nutrition that's really most important is calorie control. So you would say that in terms of um, our functional capacity um, and maintaining our quality of life as we age, as we've been discussing, from a nutrition point of view, you'd say calorie control more important than, than protein optimization? Sure. I think one can be healthy with really quite a wide range of protein. I mean, clearly, if it's too low, that's a bad thing. Um, but there's an interaction between exercise and protein that, and also age that comes into play. The younger you are and the more physically active you are, the lower your protein intake can be, and you're pretty healthy. The older you get or sedentary, then you really need to pay more and more attention to protein. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts. 
that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. I want to dig into to, to why that is. Um, yeah. I've got a lot of, a lot of questions on, on protein, but, um, uh, around source and timing and, and, and all of that, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad you sort of put that into context there. Um, before we do get into, to protein, I think it would be good t- for folks to kind of, um, understand, I guess, a bit of the landscape, the science in this area and when I look at it anyway, and I look at lots of different studies, your studies and, and other folks' studies, it seems like in, that researchers are, are interested in, in two main things when it comes to protein and muscle, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one is changes in, in what's called muscle protein synthesis um, or MPS, which I'll get you to, to help define and, and, and unpack. And then the other is changes in sort of hard outcomes like the size of the muscle or the strength. Would that be a kind of fair summary of a lot of the research in this space? It's looking at these, you know, biomarkers of of protein synthesis or changes in function and muscle size. Sure. Right. Um, You know, at some level we need to get, you know, lipid oxidation and cart and cart and glucose oxidation into that package. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yes. I agree. <laughs> okay, so if someone's hearing muscle protein synthesis, 
um, or MPS for the first time, or maybe they have seen someone on social media or have seen MPS on a study before. As I understand, just in terms of muscle physiology, there's a, there's a, a bit of a, a sort of constant state of flux with, with, in muscle tissue. So there's synthesis of, of new uh, contractile proteins and then there's breakdown occurring at the same time. Can you kind of just explain the physiology here at whatever level you think is helpful for the listeners um, and how, how nutrition and, and um, exercise sort of interact with this? Okay. Um, let me do some physiology first and then you can ask mm-hmm. me the second questions again. Um, the first thing I think is important for everybody to understand is that whether you're 16 or 65, we all need to make almost 300 grams of new protein per day. Every protein in the body is doing what we call turnover. And different proteins have different lifespans. Uh, there are proteins in the liver that are replaced every hour. There are proteins in the muscle that are replaced every month and a half. And there's connective tissue like in your knee joints and whatever that are replaced every six months or so. But the, the striking thing people need to come to grips with is that about four times every year, you've replaced the equivalent of every protein in your body. So that's kind of interesting to keep in mind. Uh, if you're looking at maximum rate of growth, how much protein can you do with resistance exercise and lay down per day? That number is about five grams. And so you need to make 30 and only 15 and only five of it could actually be net gain. Okay, so that's turnover. If you look at the whole body, then about of that 300, about 25% is muscle. Muscle makes up 50% of your body protein, but only gets 25% of your turnover. Okay, where the liver and the gut and the kidney have these get 75 percent in the middle of the night, your liver has to be making protein or you die Mm -hmm. where your muscle becomes a reservoir of amino acid. It's kind of sitting there and it's not being used while you're sleeping. And so it actually donates the amino acids that the liver's using in the middle of the night. So you've got this balance thing going on where protein in the liver is constantly being made, where protein in the muscle is only getting made associated with meals. And so there's this constant going back and forth that you referred to between synthesis and breakdown, what's in that balance. Um, During fasting period, muscle is in a net negative, and during feeding periods, it's in a net positive. Liver's not doing that. So that's kind of a overview of what is synthesis. Synthesis is that process of making those new proteins, whether they're enzymes or structural, whatever, those new proteins you make every day. And in the muscle, particularly as we get older, is very much meal driven. And we can get to distribution about that question later. Right. You've just um, got me rattled my brain with a bunch of questions. I want to come back to this idea of eating a, a large amount of protein before bed. Um, and it kind of ties into what you were just saying then about sort of donating amino acids from muscle to liver. Um, I want to circle back and see if any 
type of meal timing can can reduce the kind of let's um, let's start with breakfast before we go to yeah, bedtime. But okay. right, <laughs> yeah, we'll go through we'll go through the whole day of, of protein um, timing. Um, but where does muscle protein synthesis, as measured in studies, sort of come into this? I'm interested. Is that looking at the sort of um, a, a, an amount of protein synthesis or the rate of synthesis? What's being actually measured when studies are, say, putting people into a resistance training program, feed them protein, and then they measure this thing called MPS? Yeah. So uh, uh, muscle protein synthesis is more of a rate rate of protein synthesis. Um, you can calculate uh, an amount to go with it based on, you know, how you know, you measured your rate in what one gram of tissue, and therefore you have X amount of tissue. You can you can get a, an amount, but generally we talk about rates. Um, if you look at muscle, uh, say after a, when you wake up in the morning, you've been fasting for twelve hours. Muscle protein synthesis is at its lowest level, and it might be running at say a basal 20, 30 percent. And then with the right kind of breakfast, you can have that more than double. Um, you can mm-hmm. go from basal 20 up to 100% of whatever max is or something. So you get this big meal effect. And do we have any real sense for uh, how well correlated muscle protein synthesis is with, say, things that we care about, which now I'm questioning because... Originally, I was yeah. thinking about hypertrophy, but now you've got me thinking that, well, actually, maybe we care about other things more so than muscle size. But I'm, I'm, my question here is how, how meaningful is MPS as a biomarker with regards to what you and I care about for folks that are aging um, and would like to maintain their function? That's a remarkably good question, and the reality is we don't have a great answer for it. Um, there's been, I mean, we know for a fact that the magnitude of protein synthesis that we measure in a two-hour period would correlate to somebody quadrupling their muscle size in a month, in a month. <laughs> and that doesn't happen. So the part of the process, I talked about turnover. So synthesis is one part and degradation or breakdowns, the other part, and they tend to go together. When synthesis goes up, breakdown also goes up. And when mm-hmm. synthesis goes down, breakdown goes down. Um, and, and there's a crossover during after a meal, synthesis is the higher one. And in the middle of an overnight fast, breakdown's the higher one. So we have a net loss. Um, mm-hmm. How do you average that out? Where people are going to newer techniques with deuterated water and things like that, where they can measure synthesis and turnover over a much longer period of time, days, maybe a week. Mm-hmm. And that may translate better into actual compositional changes. Um, right now, I would say we use synthesis as a marker of testing diets. Uh, does it relate to strength? Or, not very well. Does it relate to mass? Not particularly well. Uh, does it relate to making nutrition choices? We think it does. Um, so I view it more as a, uh, a testing method than a pure translation to outcomes. And so with 
with that in mind, I'm, I'm assuming that you, you just see a role for both types of studies or studies that are even looking at the two of these together and sort of combining what's happening at a more sort of mechanistic level with what's happening at a function level? Sure. And, you know, you and I have been talking about functional outcomes relative to strength or mobility mm-hmm. or metabolic function or, you know, and, and that then ultimately longevity or mortality. I mean, so we, those are different outcomes. Uh, in the short run, you know, we need to have things to test and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's, you know, I think they're, I think they're pretty good markers for making decisions, but again, they're not translating to those outcomes per se. When, when we look at MPS, so we're looking at that rate, something else that I've, I've seen um, in different studies is, are we, are, we, are we most interested in how high or the increase in that rate, or are we interested in like like area under the curve, similar to like blood glucose area under the curve. So you might have a certain protein that you have after a workout and it gives you a great big spike up, but then it comes sure. back down. And then another protein which doesn't spike as quickly but stays up, MPS stays up, um, and perhaps the area under the curve is similar. Is Do we know if one of those is kind of more meaningful than the other? Well, first of all, there have been a lot more studies of the first type where they're looking at like a single time. They'll pick an hour after a meal or two hours or whatever. Now, as the methods are becoming a little better and we can get more continuous you know, values, we're getting more area under the curve. And I, I think people would side toward the area under the curve. Um, but again, that really doesn't tell you the story unless you can also put breakdown with it, which we can't do. So mm. does a does a spike give you a bigger anabolic difference to breakdown or does a, a long drawn out synthesis curve? Which one gives you the better net gain? Uh, ultimately, you have to measure six, eight weeks out and say, well, I got more muscle, so that word worked. The problem with all of that is that it's hard to control people that long. You know, how do you control their diet? You can maybe control their exercise, but how do you control their diet for eight weeks? Uh, you know, people will give a supplement or do, but that doesn't really tell you the answer. So that's the problem with nutrition is we can't really control it that well. Um, and people don't like animal studies. I frankly do like animal studies because you can control them. And, you know, my, my argument is usually, you know, if the animal study and the human study agree, then that's awesome. If the animal study and the human study don't agree, then you need to ask some real tough questions as to which one's wrong. My question was, you mentioned that we can't measure muscle protein breakdown. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this and and studies are looking at okay what happens to the rate of synthesis but as you say really what's important is what's the net effect and in 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 order to sort of understand that picture you have to consider well how much muscle protein is being broken down um why can't why can't we measure that first and foremost reason is that we recycle about six out of every seven amino acids so when you're measuring synthesis, what you're doing is putting in some sort of a tracer uh, in the blood, whatever, uh, you drink it, 
eat it, whatever. Uh, it's in the blood and you measure it getting incorporated into protein. And that is kind of a one-way track, um, you know, because of the turnover, you can measure it that way. But to measure degradation, now you have to measure the amino acids coming back out. So how do you trace that? And the problem with that is that as you break down a protein, six out of every seven amino acids on average gets reincorporated. And so now you've got this massive problem of how do you sort that out? Um, People have done things like, you know, using muscles in, in test tubes in the past where you can kind of trap the amino acid and we get some idea about it. Um, you can do sort of whole body breakdown where you can kind of look at dilution effects. But to actually look at muscle inside of muscle, about the best thing that's been done so far is 3-methylhistidine, uh, which is uh, a, a, an amino acid called histidine that once it's in the protein gets methylated and once it's methylated, it can never be reused again. So you can see it coming out in the urine. That seems to be a reasonable, tr- it's not quantitative, but it at least gives you a direction of what's going on. We just don't have great, we don't have great techniques for it yet. Something else I want to ask you about measuring MPS and sort of looking at isolated proteins, whether you're comparing, say, whey versus egg versus soy or whatever it is. Um, And I appreciate getting down to this kind of um, very granular level has its role and is important in piecing this together. But how generalizable is that to how people actually eat in the real world in terms of having a, a sort of mixed meal with multiple foods after they do a workout, for example? Yeah. Um, we did a series of, we had a, a weight loss clinic at University of Illinois, and we did a series of clinical weight loss studies. Um, basically, as we started looking at um, people's diets in the Champaign-Urbana area, what we found out was that about 65% of their protein was coming from animal sources and 35% uh, was coming from plant sources. Uh, we can get into the whole issue of leucine and mTOR at some point. Um, but basically, we knew that the real key to the meal was having enough leucine to trigger muscle mm-hmm. protein synthesis. And so we basically tailored meals and we came up that the minimum was around 30 grams per meal to have enough leucine to balance that out. We were aiming at 2. Five grams of leucine is the minimum, uh, and depending on the age, it might be three grams. But anyway, we we're aiming at a minimum of two point five, uh, and so we were aiming at thirty. And so you've probably heard the idea of thirty grams of protein at a meal. That's exactly where it came from. We we invented that number to go to go with our weight loss studies. Um, so. Uh, you know, I, you know, I sort of lost a train of the thought here on the the no, question, th- but that's uh, th- that's. Yeah, no, no, that's that's helpful. I guess my 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 question was more. It was a a question more around methodology, and I guess um, app the 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 application oh, of findings from yeah, studies. So, so, yeah. So let me go back. Yeah. Yeah. So let me go back to your question. So uh, I just did a seminar with a way conference just here two days ago, and the, you know one of the things that is important to keep in mind is that. 
uh, in whey protein, leucine's about 12%, and in soy protein, it's a little less than 8%. So you can get to 2.5 grams with 23 grams of whey protein, or 22, and it takes 32 with soy. Um, both will have the same effect if you give everybody 35 grams. <laughs> but if you only give 20 grams, whey will have an effect and soy won't. Right. Yeah. And that's, I guess, relevant if you're having a protein shake. But Sure, if you were having exactly. if you're having a mixed meal, for example, and it had, exactly. I don't know, edamame or something and then some other foods in there and the leucine happened to be over 2.5. If you're having a mixed meal with 45 grams of protein in it and it's a, a combination of, of, of foods, um, it's not a problem. If you're, mm -hmm. if you're eating 120 grams of protein per day, it, the combination probably doesn't make much difference. If you're eating 50 grams, it probably does. And that's an important point. So some of what we're going to get into, um, from my understanding, and even speaking to Stuart Phillips, becomes a lot more of an issue if you're not eating enough protein. Um, Absolutely so, correct. So let's talk about that because the RDA yeah. is set at 0.8 grams per kilo, maybe 0.83, I think, in grams per kilo in Australia. It's a little bit different. Um, yeah. US is 0 0.8. 0 0.8, right. So that is is heavily debated. I think that yes. there are some people who have been led to believe that that's all they need. And look, I, I see this, um, sure. you know, I expose myself to lots of different communities and dietary patterns, but certainly have had uh, people on the show from more of the plant-based background. And I, I keep my sure. eye on different communities out there. And I will say there is certainly this kind of message that in some areas, you don't need to focus on protein. The RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram. I want to know from you, someone who studies protein metabolism, is thinking about quality of life, vitality, function. How was 0.8 grams per kilogram calculated? And is that a optimal or sufficient level to, to maintain the, the sort of muscle quality and, and function that we, we would like to have into old age? Yeah, the... A lot of different things come to mind. So I, I'll just, I'll take it directly the way you ask it. Then we'll go to amino acids. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in terms of where does it come from, uh, way back in the early 1900 range, before we even knew all the amino acids, people had to uh, determine uh, how much protein you could feed animals. You know, how do you get them to grow? And so they basically developed the ability to measure nitrogen. And so what the RDA is sort of a holdover from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, where we learned to measure nitrogen. And when you're growing, you can measure it because there's a nit net nitrogen accumulation. And so you can say, well, a child can have X amount of protein and they're growing normally, and we can measure the hard outcome. When you start becoming 25 to 30 and you're no longer growing, now nitrogen balance is a pretty sloppy measure. And typically the way they do it is they titrate the protein down. They go down towards zero uh, and they ask uh, in a short term, like seven days, at what point do we come into balance? So at what point does the amount of nitrogen going in 
protein that you're eating balanced with the nitrogen going out, whether it's in urine or stool, but also skin and hair and breath and all these other things that you can't measure very well. So uh, that's how it's determined, mostly in young males, 20, you know, healthy 25-year-olds or 20-year-olds at college. And that's basically where it comes from. Uh, it's widely known that nitrogen balance underestimates um, protein requirement. Um, when they do the studies, they generate what's known as an EAR, an average uh, intake, an ad- average requirement. Uh, and then they give two standard deviations above that, which is supposedly a safety factor that 97% of the population will be safe. But by definition, that means 3% of the population are actually deficient at the RDA. Okay, mm-hmm. by definition, that's, that's how it's designed. Um, then the question becomes, does it relate to aging? And we know that the efficiency of protein use goes down with aging. So we know that the RDA is based on 25-year-olds, and we know that it doesn't relate very well to 65-year-olds. There have now been, in the last 20 years or so, I don't know exactly, 100 of studies that have shown that you can always measure the difference between 0.8 and 1.2. 1.2 grams per kg for a 65-year-old, in whatever outcome you want to measure, is always better. Even in in sort of hard outcomes like strength or actual muscle size, in any any outcome you want to measure, <laughs> if you if you start trying to look at if you start getting it closer and closer, and you say, well, how about one versus one point one? We probably can't tell the difference, mm-hmm. but point eight versus one point two, every study will show a difference. So if that if that data exists out there, uh, why why hasn't the RDA been updated if it's based on the these nitrogen balance studies in young males there's um, problems with that and we have hard health outcome data showing that actually no not 0.8 grams per kilo actually 1.2 grams per kilo or thereabouts is better um, as we age to maintain function why hasn't that been changed do you think it will change Okay, so let's, let's put it into a framework of something else. Vitamin C, uh, at 60 milligrams per day, the RDA, it prevents scurvy. But in the last two years of COVID, I would say most people have been taking five grams or more. <laughs> okay, so we know that for every nutrient, there's a range of intake, DRIs, dietary reference intakes. And so they go from a minimum to prevent a deficiency up to some upper limit. And so what you and I are talking, so so the RDA, the argument for the RDA was, well, it prevents a deficiency. We're not in negative nitrogen balance. That's our definition of deficiency. Mm-hmm. Does that correlate with optimum health? Does vitamin C at 60 milligrams correlate with optimum immune health? No, it doesn't. So we take more. So why can't we think of protein that way? Why does 1.2 have to be the RDA? I mean, what's the deficiency you're preventing? Uh, right now, the deficiency you're present, preventing is nitrogen balance. Right. And you and I can debate whether that's a good deficiency, but that's been done that way for 100 years now, and that's a lot of history to change. So mm-hmm. I, 
I personally don't think the RDA is a useful argument. We need to just come to grips with an optimum health intake is different than the minimum to prevent a deficiency. Mm-hmm. Most people in the United States aren't after minimum health. They're asked right. after optimum health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Adequate versus optimal. Um, when you frame it like that, I think it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And um, I know people will be thinking, well, at what cost, at what expense, we will get to longevity and uh, mTOR and, and, and all of that. But um, before we do that, just to kind of double click on this. So if we're thinking about the average general um, uh, adult out there who is just interested in healthy aging, they're not a bodybuilder. Um, is it 1.2 grams per kilogram? Is that where you're, you're sort of currently at in terms of that's the kind of lower threshold that you would want to meet on a daily basis on average? So if, yeah, so if I was having a healthy 55-year-old who's pretty physically active, you know, doing some resistance, doing some aerobic training, I usually target the range of 1.2 to 1.6, and they can kind of fall in there wherever they want, um, you know, whatever meal pattern they want. But, um, you know, can we measure the difference between one you know, using protein synthesis, using the tools that we have, can we measure the difference between 1.2 and 1.6? The answer is no. If you had to choose, and I realize that you can actually do both of these. So in some ways, it's just- I, By the way, I personally use 1.5 in all my studies. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, if, if you had to choose between these two scenarios, Don, um, and again, this is a hypothetical. So let's say- um, 55 year old woman, um, one gram per kilogram of protein, but is doing resistance training very consistently is getting good volume in over a week is getting close to failure. So is providing a really good stimulus, but protein is at one gram per kilogram versus same woman, different scenario. She's, she's not doing the resistance training as regularly, often misses it, gets it in a couple of times a week, maybe not training as hard, but is consuming 1.6 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram. Which scenario is better from a skeletal muscle point of view? I'd have to think about that for a minute, but there's no question in my mind that uh, as far as muscle strength and hypertrophy, the resistance exercise is probably at least 75% more important than the protein level. So um, the the comparison of, you know, can more protein make up for not doing the exercise? The answer is no. Uh, Would it buffer it at all? Um, You know, so what are the calories going to be otherwise? You're going to take them in as what? You're going to take them in as carbs or fats or i mean so i i'm assuming you're giving me a calorie neutral scenario one person's burning more calories the other person's not so we're getting into all these complications of body composition without uh, you know, anyway there's you, you've got a complicated scenario there mm-hmm. okay well we'll leave it at resistance training did, training's did very i important. waffle did i waffle on that answer enough <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I guess a, a, a really 
um, another way of putting this, which again is very hypothetical, is let's say you you didn't do any resistance training, but you had the perfect protein intake distribution, whey protein, you were getting two grams per kilogram every single day. Um, your body's not just going to magically be laying down muscle tissue. Right. But, you know, if, if we now start putting that into a aging scenario where we're going to moderate it over um, 20 years and you're asking me about 1.8 versus 0.8 grams with the person doing no exercise, the person with 1.8 is going to be better off. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a good point. Is, is this protein intake? of, you know, you said in your studies 1.5, but you recommend that sort of 1.2 to 1.6 as being a more optimal intake. Is that the same for men and women? Is there any evidence to suggest that protein intake would differ between gender? Not, it doesn't seem to. Um, Both in the young studies or in the elderly studies, they seem to translate pretty well. So I think, I think, you know, the lean body mass is sort of, Ultimately, you'd like to have the protein relative to lean body mass, but we typically don't know that. So it's per body composition. Um, Women typically at the same weight would have a little less lean mass. So Mm -hmm. potentially they could have a little lower um, uh, amount. Uh, We did a lot of weight loss studies with women, uh, and we found that there was a real hard line at around one gram per kg. Uh, if they got below that, we pretty much lost all the beneficial effects of protein or exercise or whatever. Um, mm. They just changed their body composition. They might lose weight, but they had the same body fat percentage when they after they got done. <laughs> you mentioned before it, it could be or it is difficult to see if there's a difference between, say, 1.2 grams per kilogram and 1.6 with the, the kind of technical capabilities that, that exist within the field of science at the moment, uh, I'm assuming that comes down to how sensitive these, these kind of tools are. Um, and you also have mentioned that it gets harder to build muscle as, as we get older. Do you, do you think, given, given that, given this sort of concept of anabolic resistance, that as someone goes from, say, 40 to 50 60 to 70, that that protein intake should actually increase on a gram per kilogram basis? And do you think that that would be meaningful? I don't think there's any studies to really give you a hard answer about that. Um, I actually had that discussion with Stu Phillips just a couple of days ago, and we both feel that the sensitivity to some of these signals goes down as you get each of those decades. So in my opinion, the answer to that question is yes, that you probably need it to go up. And the other thing that comes in to complicate that is that as you go through each of those decades, your calorie needs are going to go down. So that means your Mm -hmm. protein needs to be a higher percentage of your diet, no matter what. Mm -hmm. So both the amount of protein probably tends up or at least the quality, the, is your, the, the percentage of your diet that needs to be essential amino acids probably needs to go up. And so, you know, you, you, you brought up the plant-based issues 
I think it's I think it's far more it's far easier to have a heavily plant-based diet when you're 20 and 30 than it is when you're 60 and 70. Mm-hmm. And so you're 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 sort of coming to that conclusion because as you're getting older, your appetite's down, you're eating less calories. And your appetite may or may not be down, but your calorie need is definitely down. Right. So calorie needs are down and therefore um, you're, you're more likely to be getting um, inadequate amounts of leucine and total protein on a per, per meal basis to yeah. optimize this sort of MPS signal that you're referring to. Right. So there's data to back up that kind of thinking, that the efficiency of how you trigger a meal, and then we can get into whether the meal makes any difference or not, but the efficiency of how you trigger the meal goes down with passing decades. Yeah, let's let's go into that. But something that's just on the on the top of my mind here is is do you think in that sort of instance, and it's probably applicable not just to those who are eating very plant-based diets, but elderly in general, um, shakes and more isolated proteins, potentially even amino acid supplementation. Are these things, do they have a potential benefit in that population? I definitely agree. And uh, research studies have been done like that uh, to show that that can be beneficial. Um, I I definitely think that... Um, you know, as chewing becomes more of an issue, you know, what kinds of things can you eat? Uh, I think supplements, you know, uh, protein foods or whatever you want to call them, mixes that have higher protein density are important to think about. Um, leucine supplementation maybe worth thinking about too. Okay, let's let's dig a little bit more into leucine. So um, you mentioned two and a half grams of leucine. Um, is kind of like a, a threshold when you consume that amount from from what I understand and listening to you and reading your work is that triggers a sort of uh, maximal muscle protein synthesis response um, to that to that meal and as you alluded to earlier that's where the 30 grams of protein quality protein in a meal came from because that essentially helps you get to that 2.5 grams of of leucine. So at a, at a sort of muscle level, um, why leucine? Why this particular amino acid? Why is it important? What's it doing? Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, there's a real difference in how the body regulates protein synthesis in the liver versus muscle. The liver has this continuous need for protein synthesis, so it's around the clock and it regulates more by energy. So unless you're super starving, the liver goes about it's doing its business. In muscle, because it's so big and it costs so much, it requires so much energy, there's some estimates that you know very high percentage of basal metabolism rates are actually for protein synthesis. Muscle's really an expensive uh, thing to maintain. So the body has learned to do it at meals. It's learned to do that. I want to come back to children versus adults, but do it at meals. What we now know, what we discovered in the late 1990s is that one of the triggers for all of this is the branch chain amino acid leucine. 
for years, since the 1930s, we've known that the branch chain amino acids are not metabolized in liver. All of the other amino acids are metabolized in liver, but these three branch chain, leucine, valine, and isoleucine, get sent out primarily to skeletal muscle. So the body has learned to sense it. It senses it as an indicator of protein coming in. And basically, when that leucine concentration goes up from basically fasting levels to about three times fasting levels, uh, it triggers a complex inside muscle known as mTOR. And that's the main sort of central regulatory function that triggers all these sort of initiation factors. And we trigger maximum protein synthesis. What we now know is that there are actually four signals that the muscle is integrating at the same time. This is very different than liver. It's integrating protein by sensing leucine. It's integrating growth hormones, insulin and IGF-1. It's integrating energy, ATP, and it's integrating stress, resistance exercise. Mm. When all four of those are correctly balanced, it triggers mTOR and muscle protein synthesis. So all of those it's looking at. Um, what's interesting is that in children, it's dominated by the insulin. It's dominated by the hormone side and meal distribution doesn't make any difference in children. But once you stop growing, the hormones no longer control that system. And now it's dominated by meal quality and leucine is the primary key. Growth hormone. And it's so growth hormone is one of the, the growth hormones, insulin and IGF. Insulin and IGF. IGF right. um, we may as well tackle the longevity piece now. Okay. Um, because this is this is usually where I think people get a little bit confused, right? They're listening to Don yeah. Lehman, expert in protein yeah. metabolism. And and I think they're sitting there thinking, you know what? I, I this makes sense. I want to have good quality skeletal muscle. I don't want to be frail. Now they they flick the channel and they're listening to Volta Longo. And I think you know where I'm going with this. And now of all course. of a sudden they're exposed to um, information um, which from my read on it seems to come from two sort of main areas of evidence. One is that there is various studies looking at animals where there's been specific amino acid kind of restriction or protein restriction. I think it started in trout of all animals and then there was my studies looking at, okay, if you restrict the methionine or branch chain amino acids, what happens to lifespan in an animal? And then the second um, sort of piece of evidence that gets cited or intertwined into this story of low protein being good for longevity is um, some NHANES sort of data that showed people under the age of 65 or 50 to 65 that had high protein intake had much higher mortality and cancer incidents. And so, Don, I think people get caught in the middle of this and rightly so when they're exposed to the, the information, both of those sets of information, you kind of end up just thinking, okay, well, is it a case of, I'm going to optimize my protein. I'm going to be strong, but it's going to come at the expense of cancer or a shorter life. Help people reconcile this. So which one do you want to 
take on first, the crappy epidemiology or the crappy animal studies? <laughs> I'm, I'm in your hands. So let's, you've obviously had this question posed many times. I'm sure you've had a lot of private chats with your colleagues. So you know, walk us through the history here. Okay, so let's start with the animal studies. Um, rodents have been primary what have been used to do these studies. So when you put a rodent in a laboratory, um, it's a sterile environment. They never get any diseases. They never break any bones. They never have any trauma. They never have to recover from anything. Um, you know, they're in a sterile environment. Um, so that's, you know, that protects them. They never have to recover from anything. Um, tell me how a rodent eats. You know how a rodent eats? Blind me. <laughs> a rodent eats continuously 24 hours a day in captivity. It's called ad libitum. And mm. so if you take a rodent out of, you know, at any point and you look in its stomach, its stomach is full of food. Humans don't eat that way. Humans eat discrete meals. And so what you do is you regulate things up and down. mTOR is a signal up and down. But if you basically put an animal in a cage and feed it 100% of the time, then it's constantly regulated up. Okay. And then if you go back and do a restriction, like Longo does and others, one of the things to recognize is when a rat is in a cage and fed ad libitum, the only thing it does is eat. So it's overeating by 40%. And what did I tell you a little while ago was the biggest issue in nutrition? Calories. Okay, so when everybody says that it's about protein or it's about something else, it's about calories. They're obscuring the issue. And we'll come back to that with the epidemiology data. Um, and then when they go in and they start restricting, what the first thing that happens is the animals will eat the diet and then fast till the next time they get fed. So you've got one group eating continuously around the clock, getting 80, 40 or 50% overweight. And now you've got another group that is actually food restricted. So they're only eating part of the day. And now they're more like a human eats and they're fasting part of the day. These two have nothing in common. We know that if you restrict, if you restrict calories, you increase longevity. We did those experiments back in the 70s. The animal studies, to me, are a total sham of the people not knowing how to do the studies. So just to clarify something, so essentially um, what you're saying, if I heard correctly, is that in these studies where they do protein restriction, an inevitable outcome of that is simultaneously there is calorie restriction. And then it becomes difficult to say, well, what do you attribute the change in lifespan to? Is it the differences in amino acids or is it a, the fact that compared to the control, that animal is now eating far less calories? And, and it's important to understand that your control is abnormal. Your control is an obesity model because they're overeating. Gotcha. Okay, so you're, you're now bringing it back. At the University of Illinois, the animal care facility, they allowed us to do a 40% restriction of food intake to, to rodents because that actually normalized them. 40% mm -hmm. restriction. 
yeah, I'm 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 following what you're saying. You're saying there is an artificial sort of um, enhanced contrast between these two groups, and a a if you were going to to actually test whether amino acid restriction or protein restriction did have a significant effect on lifespan, you would want calories to be equated. But then it becomes difficult because you're starting to introduce well, what, a, what are animals or people eating instead? Yeah, you're going to have to feed them discrete meals at the same calorie level with the two different proteins for two and a half years. That mm-hmm. hasn't been done <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> you know, it, it's labor intensive. If you go back and ask Lane, one of the things that he will always hate me for is all of the studies we ever did with animals were meal fed. Mm-hmm. Rodents are very good animal mo- models for human metabolism if they're meal fed. But if you don't meal feed them, then you don't have the same model. Mm-hmm. So calories are the issue. You've got to be 100%. We know that obesity shortens longevity. No question about that. Mm-hmm. And you have to be careful that you can sort that out. So now we go to the human epidemiology. and Now you've got the same problem. When you go in and say that, uh, well, people who ate more meat or ate more protein have shorter longevity or have more, the fact is they have more calories. You can't sort that out. And they have different meal patterns. Uh, I was director of research for the American Egg Board for four years. And one of the things that we looked at was there's a lot of epidemiology that say, Eggs, egg intake correlates with obesity and heart disease and diabetes. But if you factor out the people who ate hamburgers at fast food every day and basically find the people who had protein intakes that had reasonable vegetable intakes, it all washes out and eggs become a positive. So again, it's context. And the people who want to make the anti-protein argument aren't interested in the context. We've written editorials about Longo's research and the mishandling of data and the misinterpretation of data multiple times. So in, so in Longo's um, sort of analysis, where he found higher protein under the age of 65 was associated with increased mortality. There was no adjustment for, for diet quality or for calories, body weight, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I can't tell you that exactly, but what I do know is he went through and he manipulated the protein categories till he found a small group of people that were down around 0.7 grams per kg, and he compared that to the other. So he manipulated the data. Did he manipulate specifically body weight? I'd have to go back and look at that. I don't remember. Okay. What do you think? What's the, what's the, I got a couple questions here. What, on, on Dr. Longo, and, and I don't want to make this personal, but it's, it's not just Dr. Longo. This is a, a, um, a view that's held by, you know, not just him, other people in the, in the field of kind of longevity as well that you hear people talking about. What's the motive here? Because um, it, it, from what I understand, Dr. Longo, he eats an omnivorous diet with animal protein himself. So it doesn't seem to be a plant versus animal thing. Why, why do you think... If the data does not show what what he's saying, do you think he is actually convinced by the data that that's what it shows, or do you think there is another sort of motive behind this low protein message? I, I don't know him. I've never talked with him, so I can't attribute motive at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I 
uh, I mean, there, there is, you know, definitely, you know, biased in terms of people who work in those areas. Uh, you know, they're, they're definitely looking for data to support their bias. <clears throat> is there such a thing as too much protein? You mentioned methionine. You know, I think those are reasonable questions. I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, the methionine restriction data uh, is very extreme. Um, you know, it's done in short term. So I don't know. I don't know how to translate that into long term health. Um, you know, I, I see people going out and, you know, at, you know, people pushing, you know, two grams per kg protein. I never personally push that. I don't know what the upper limit is from a health standpoint. I can't see any particular benefit to that. The only, you know, so, you know, is there a risk to people taking, uh, you know, consuming 130 grams of protein per day? I'm not convinced of any data that backs that up. Okay. Well, that's, that's comforting for anyone that's worried about protein and, and longevity. Um, you sort of mentioned one study there, but is there is it is it that study in in animal models or what what science would you like to see in this area, if any, to fill some gaps to better understand the effect of sp specific amino acids or protein on lifespan? Back to our earlier conversation, I don't really think lifespan is the answer. I think healthy living is the answer. I think those are the right studies. And I, you know, I, I think I see these lifespan studies sort of clouding the picture. I, um, and again, you know, what's the motivation for that? I, you know, fountain of youth, I don't know. But I, even people who think they've studied longevity you know, I don't know of anybody who thinks they're moving the 120 age maximum any, you know, I, mm -hmm. people aren't going to live to 150 and chances are they wouldn't want to live there. So, you know, I don't, I just don't think longevity is a very useful target. Mm -hmm. And I did, I did, I started my career doing aging research. So, you know, I get it. <laughs> no, I, um, I, I tend to agree with you on, on that. I think we, um, we made that clear earlier. The other, the other thing that comes to mind with regards to um, vitality and um, health span in general, I think that comes up here, and this comes back to source of the protein as well, Don, and um, I think um, we can probably go into a lot, a lot of the weeds here, so I think we could probably keep this high level for now, but... I, I want to chat to you about cardiovascular disease because something else that I think about personally here is I've got cardiovascular disease in my family. Um, I'm aware that it's the, 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 the number one probably likely reason I'm going to die prematurely. And um, even, if, even if you have a heart attack and survive, it can still affect your sort of quality of life. And if we look to like the latest of um, AHA sort of guidelines for preventing cardiovascular disease, they have a very clear statement that says to choose healthy sources of protein. And they're not anti-animal protein that still is in there, but they talk about lean meats. Um, but then below that healthy protein, they, they have a very um, clear line that says mostly protein from plants. So um, I want to I workshop and, and this with you and just 
tell you sort of how I respond to that. I guess I see everything that you're talking about with regards to muscle protein synthesis, the importance of building and uh, preserving skeletal muscle as we age, not just for being able to get up and down the steps, but for metabolic health um, as well. And I sort of land in this position where I think that it's a, a safe bet to have an uh, optimal amount of protein intake, certainly above the RDA, um, but to be having a bias towards plant protein over animal protein. And I want to know, is that a crazy position for me to kind of to take when I'm looking at all of this? So let's back up a little bit. Um, so what do you think the protein intake in the U.S. is right now? I'm going to take a stab that, I mean, it depends on the dietary pattern, but an in, in omnivorous dietary pattern, 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilo, something like that. Much, much lower. It's, it's between 0.9 and 1. Okay. Okay. So let's think about the plants. What percentage of calories in the U.S. diet comes from plants? There's a, a large percentage, I would say, coming in from heavily refined plants. For sure. Oh, now we're going. Now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> so, seventy percent of the calories in the American diet comes from plants. Of those, fifty-five uh, percent comes from sugars, refined oils, and hydrogenated oils. Another thirty-five percent comes from refined grains. So, of the plant calories, the American diet that's in the American diet, over eighty percent of them are coming from garbage. So your idea that we need more healthy plants, I couldn't be more, I couldn't endorse that idea more. So my argument is we don't need a more plant-based diet. We need a diet with better plants. Mm -hmm. I have heard you say that. <laughs> so the protein level is not the problem. We get by far the majority of our nutrients in the American diet come from that. You know, should people eat more broccoli and avocados and green beans? Absolutely. Okay. But that's not what they're eating. And, but that's not the problem of animal foods. Are people eating, are there people who have dietary patterns eating animal foods that are unhealthy? Too many fast foods, too much pizza. The number one source of saturated fat in the American diet is cheese on pizza. The number two source is hydrogenated oils, plant sources. Beef has gone down 40% since 1975, while cancer sort of stayed the same. Heart disease has got higher. Obesity and diabetes have skyrocketed. So you can't blame it on beef. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, a lot of that's been swapped with chicken, right, which I would argue is... You know, yeah, not, we not can, you know, so we can, we can, you know, and, and the primary source of chicken is breaded mm -hmm. and fried in vegetable oils. <laughs> I think there's, um, a lot of, a lot of, I mean, you're saying a lot of good things. I think everyone would agree that the primary problem with the standard, uh, American diet or standard Western diet is the fact that, what is it? 60% of calories are coming from ultra processed, um, foods. Sure. Yeah. I guess I personally see benefit and there are substitution analyses looking at this where you um, control for things like saturated fat and fiber 
um, and you do get a reduction in, say, ApoB containing lipoproteins um, for swapping some calories from animal protein to plant protein. Um, and I always come back to the fact that if you if you do look at the average ApoB containing or ApoB level across America, it's it's high. It's it's not you know coming back to this idea of what's normal versus optimal. We could have the same discussion about ApoB. Um, I think there's pretty clear evidence that the the sort of average level of ApoB in in countries like America and Australia is uh, well well above the kind of threshold where you don't see atherosclerosis. Um, so I guess I'm trying to kind of sure. balance all of these different aspects of of health. If you know you're eating fast food three times a day and that's your problem, but if you're um, you know, eating candy bars uh, with hydrogenated oils and too many calories and too much sugar, it's also your problem. And so I think we can agree that unhealthy diets are unhealthy. Um, are there healthy diets that are primarily animal-based that have good fiber contents and, and good vegetable content? I would argue there are. Are there unhealthy vegetarian diets? I would argue there are. Just by saying it's plant-based doesn't make it healthy. No, I would. I I definitely agree with that. I think you know I go back to some of Eve, even Lauren Cordain's. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but some of his yeah, early know. papers where where he he writes about the the kind of paleo diet and and I would agree that in the way that he puts forward the paleo diet, that's a tremendously healthy dietary pattern. Um, yeah. I think the way that often it's done online is different. Um, yeah. to kind of what he describes, which is a very low saturated fat, kind of lean animal protein um, style diet with high fiber. I don't know of much research to show that if calories are in check, what level of saturated fat actually makes a difference? You know, if calories aren't in check, then it seems to make a difference. You know, where did this 30% fat number come from? Basically, it came from a room where two groups were arguing, and one group was arguing that it had to be below 10%, and the other group was arguing that 45% was had plenty of research behind it, and they were absolutely at a stalemate. And somebody said, well, would you accept 30 as a compromise? And so they all agreed on 30%, and there's no data at all to back that number. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure that the total fat, Amount, I would agree with you. I, I think that, uh, you know, it's kind of irrelevant. But I do think the quality of the fat, and I would say trying to put an exact kind of percentage on it is in some ways it's okay, I guess, at a population level, but it's on a personal level, people respond differently. If you have enough physical activity that you're burning the calories you come in, it doesn't make much difference. If you're storing the calories that come in, then it makes more difference. Yes, but I still even even on that I'd push back a little bit because you can be lean and be ha- dumping a, a, a high, very high saturated fat diet and have very high LDL cholesterol. Um, I've seen it; it's in the it's in the literature. Okay, let's let's come back to to protein um, and optimizing it. So we've spoken about the the total amount, um, and you've kind of. Um, made it clear that you feel like it should be higher than the RDA, sort of between that 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram mark. 
how important is distribution? Um, you mentioned earlier that in some of those protein studies and, and mice are eating all day, so they're activating mTOR all day. Um, now, in some bodybuilding communities, people will talk about eating six, seven meals, waking up in the middle of the night. Is, yeah. is that an example where you are overactivating mTOR? Should we be trying to get our protein in from less meals so that we have less of these kind of pulses? What, what do you, how do you kind of reconcile all of that? Well, I think you describe two different populations with different goals. The bodybuilders, um, you know, are trying to maximize their mass in shortest period of time. Uh, and, I, you know, so I think higher protein intakes and, you know, in, in multiple meals is a good way to go. I think that's, I think that's logical. Does, is that, is that a good me- you know, prescription for long-term health. I'm not sure what the studies on bodybuilders are in terms of that. Uh, in terms of of the average adult who's trying to maintain their health, uh, I go for two to three meals a day that have 40 plus grams of protein in it. That's sort of where I start. Uh, meal distribution. Um, when we discovered the mTOR, we discovered that um, triggering uh, protein synthesis was a key. And so the amount of protein, the amount of leucine in the meal was important. It's important to recognize that literally every study that's ever been done on that's been done with breakfast. So the only, mm-hmm. bre- the only meal where we absolutely know mTOR is down is after an overnight fast. So the only meal that it's ever really been shown that distribution is key to is breakfast. So I, Doug Patton Jones and I ran a study that has been widely overinterpreted where we took 90 grams and the American distribution of 10, 20, 60, and we did distributed it at 30, 30, 30. And we showed that there were uh, more net protein sy- synthesis in a 24-hour period. That has led people to say that we need an even distribution through the day. That's not what it proved. That's not really what I think it proved. What I think it proved is that 30 grams of breakfast is a lot better than 10. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. What we also know is that when you trigger mTOR at breakfast, mTOR is still fully triggered five hours later. So why do you need 30 grams at lunch? So, so the idea there is when you wake up and you've been in this sort of fasted, I guess, catabolic state, that by triggering mTOR, you're, you're helping preserve muscle, you're helping prevent that breakdown that would otherwise occur if you woke up and say fasted to midday. Right. So when you wake up, you are in a catabolic muscle condition and until you have a meal that has 30 or mm-hmm. plus grams of protein, you're going to stay in that catabolic condition. Okay. So um, this sounds like the food industry marketing breakfast as the most important meal of the day. Uh, what in the food industry has 30 grams of protein at breakfast? <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned the American board, egg board before. Um, do you ever get asked about uh, conflicts of interest or, um, you know, funding from uh, um, industry, you know, it's a question that I, I see come up sure. all the time. And I think 
I'm th- I think it's it's worth worth explaining to people why industry fund studies and why there are affiliations. I think it's important for people to understand in the United States, there are two major funding things. One is the National Institute of Health, and they only fund research relative to disease. They don't fund research relative to health. <laughs> they fund for disease. And then there's the National Academy of Sciences, which funds incredibly fundamental research. So if you want to study the effect of a protein or you want to study the effect of soy, you have to go to the industry to get it. NIH tells you that. And so that's the catch-22 that there's basically no one in nutrition virtually that doesn't have industry money. And so, you know, is that a bias? I guess it is. But then you have to go back to the review system. You know, if somebody said, well, I don't like your research because you had money from the egg board. um, I say, fine. But my research has been out there now for 22 years on this topic. And the longer it goes, the stronger it gets. That's the that's science. There's nobody. Everything I've done is totally visible. Everybody can reproduce these studies. And every time they reproduce them, they're right. And so that's the proof. If I see somebody comes out with a new study that claims something crazy, I say, well, that's interesting. When I see it in two more labs from different places, I'll begin to believe it. You know, I don't believe it. You know, I see Longo research. And when I see it in two more reputable labs, that do the same thing with the right controls, I'll take it seriously. But at this point, I don't. And that's the way people need, when you see a headline in the newspaper, that means it's a first discovery of something off the wall, which, you know, 10 years from now, come back and ask if it's the same thing, then you'll know what the science is telling you. Reproducibility. Have you ever felt compromised in terms of um, publishing a study or the methodology given where the fundings come from? One of the things that people don't, the answer of that is no, because I don't deal with companies like that. Um, Mm. One of the things you need to understand is that the commodity-based companies, um, eggs, beef, dairy, they're all under the direct supervision of the USDA. And those funding commodity companies under the, law have no jurisdiction over your publication. They can't interfere. They can't even see it. You know, sometimes when we send it into publication, we'll give it to them as a courtesy, but they can't even see it in in the writing stage. However, if the funding's coming from Coke or Kellogg's or something like that, it's free reign. They're under the jurisdiction of the Federal Trade Commission And as long as they don't say they're curing cancer, they can say anything they want. So when people ask me, well, aren't you concerned that you had money from the beef board or from the egg board? I'm certainly not anywhere near as concerned about the people at Harvard taking money from Coke. With with all of this industry funding, what happens if a study uh, produces a sort of result that would be negative for that industry? Does a, does a study being funded have to be published or are there a bunch of studies out there that could have negative results that have never seen the light of day, which would 
affect how we're kind of looking the at it. The funding agency in the commodity area has no jurisdiction over that. So an investigator could choose not to publish it. Um, and so you could say that's some kind of a bias. Um, in the area of other companies, Kellogg's, Coke, whatever, they do demand to see it before it's published. It's not a level playing field that people need to understand. And the biased, um, I would argue, is more biased toward refined things than there is toward natural foods, dairy, eggs, meats, fish. Okay, coming back to to, to meal timing where we kind of just started here, um, there's a few ideas out there, I think, within particularly within the bodybuilding community. Um, one is about sort of the anabolic window. Um, so you mentioned then how important breakfast is. Um, yeah. But let's say, for example, someone's training in the afternoon. They, they do their resistance training in the afternoon. How important is the protein bolus before that training session and sort of immediately after? I don't think there's any real data that supports a bolus before. We've done some of that type of research in animals where we could really control it, and we never found any effect. Um, we were the first to publish protein after research because what we, what we were looking for is conditions where we would doubt. So we know that overnight fasting downregulates mTOR and protein synthesis. So we were looking for other conditions. Exhaustive exercise will also do it. So we thought, okay, so this is where we can test, you know, what's the controlling mechanism. And that's actually where we discovered the leucine mechanism. What people need to know about that, though, is when it's been translated into humans, it seems to only really be affected in the early phases of training. If you take an untrained person and you stress them with a new training regimen, taking in protein right after seems to be beneficial. But if you take somebody who is well-trained at the level that they're training at, uh, whether they have it right after exercise or whether it's the net during the day, it doesn't seem, as far as I'm concerned from the literature, it doesn't seem to matter. So anabolic window, I think, has been overinterpreted. I think it is something that in training and new stress probably is useful. Um, Protein immediately ahead of exercise, I don't see any data that convince me that that's useful. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in, in order of kind of priority, um, to achieving a, an optimal sort of total protein sounds like that's going to be very important when it comes to protein. Right. A, a good amount of protein at breakfast, so coming out of that fasting period. Let's just change that to first meal so people don't think first there's meal. a... You know, it doesn't have to be six in the morning. It could be 11 in the morning. But whenever you eat first, it should be high protein. And I also then like to have a large meal late in the day. So I think your, your last meal of the day, let's call it dinner in the United States, I think that should be a big meal also. Mm -hmm. So I get the feeling that you probably aren't a huge fan of time-restricted eating or some type of fasting. I'm okay with that. I think it's a calorie control mechanism. So again, you have to ask what's your objective. So if you're an adult struggling with calories, um, 
eating twice a day, you know, once at noon and once at seven, maybe that's a good model for you or six or whatever you want. So restricting the number. I mean, one of the things we know is one of the major issues in obesity is snacking. Mm -hmm. Having more food experiences per day, eating a fourth meal late in the day, uh, those are all calorie problems. And so time-restricted, for me, that is just, you know, I frequently will actually resort to eat, you know, I, I work from home most of the time. I will frequently resort to two meals per day, uh, 10.30 and 6.30. You earlier spoke about the the mice eating all day and that being a different scenario because of that constant activation of mTOR. Is that, do you also think about snacking like that? Is that another reason why you prefer just having a good high-protein meal, then no food, followed by another good high-protein meal some hours later? So, so yes, I, I want, I want, mTOR to pulse. I want you to, I want it to go up and I want it to come back down. And so I definitely want it to pulse. I don't want it to just be up. Um, mm-hmm. Snacking tends to be high carb, high fat, high energy. Um, you're talking about cancer earlier. Uh, one of the things that Longo is interested in is IGF-1. So we ran a cancer study in animals looking at the difference between high protein versus high carb. And both stimulate IGF-1. What we found is that we got more tumor growth and promotion with a high-carb diet than we got with a high-protein diet. Mm -hmm. So again, calories are key. But the you know, as I said at the beginning, there are multiple signals for mTOR. Insulin is one of them. What kind of carbohydrates were used in in that study? Um, We used a combination of of uh, cornstarch and sugars. So very refined. The the other idea that I see out there, um, Don, is, and you have kind of spoken to this because earlier you spoke about the fact that it's not just skeletal muscle that makes protein. There's proteins made in our liver, for example. So there's a requirement for protein over and above skeletal muscle. Um, you've also established the 30 gram sort of protein dose came from the leucine research but there's this idea out there that if you eat more than 30 grams of protein, well, anything above that is a waste. Your body cannot use it. Um, can you help us make sense of this? <laughs> so let's think about a 50-year-old who's stable body weight. So they're not gaining or losing weight and they eat 100 grams of protein per day. What happens to that? That's a good question. Um, well, it won't all be incorporated in skeletal muscle. It all gets wasted. It all gets, right. you have to burn the exact equivalent per day mm-hmm. of what you take in. So whether you take in 90 or whether you take in 160, you're still going to burn it all. The issue is you need a constant supply of the essential amino acids to keep that cycle running. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, you need, you need a constant supply of the protein to keep it running. The 30 grams, you know, the 30 grams doesn't even max protein synthesis in muscle. Uh, there was a paper by Doug Patton Jones at one point where he sort of argued that 30 was the optimum, but there's been a number of other people that have shown that when you look at protein synthesis in muscle, um, 30 
again, depending on the quality of protein, it could be 25, but something around 30 triggers it, but it probably still goes up. It's a, it's a flattening curve. You don't get as big a response with additional protein, but it probably doesn't plateau until 50 or 55 or 60 grams. So I personally recommend people have 40 grams of protein at, at breakfast and get 55 at dinner. Mm-hmm. And in lunch can be 20 or whatever you want. Um, so mm-hmm. I distribute it unevenly with one fairly large meal that's kind of maxing the system and another meal that's just kind of early triggering it. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's how, you know, people, people, you know, every, when you eat a protein, if you eat a meal that's got 30 or 60 grams of protein in it, when it comes in, almost 50% of that protein, those amino acids are oxidized in the liver and the gut before it ever gets to the blood. It's called first pass elimination. Mm -hmm. So it's always happening. So the idea that you'll hear some trainers say, well, you can't absorb more than 30. Well, that's nonsense. You'll absorb whatever you eat. It can be a hundred grams. You can't utilize it. Well, the efficiency probably goes down as you go higher. Um, So, you know, 30 grams might be, you know, a cost benefit. You might get the maximum effect for the fewest calories. So if your issue is obesity, that may be an issue. But if your issue is I want to gain muscle mass, then 50 might, 55 might be a better target for you. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, it's the range of activity after a meal is probably 25 to 60. That in that range, you probably get a benefit. Are you aware of anything that we should do or could do or shouldn't do that would affect the amount of, of say, branched chain amino acids getting to muscle tissue after a meal? And, and I think of this because I recently saw a paper looking at cold therapy and it looked at folks jumping into an ice bath after a um, training session and it actually showed reduced amino acid uptake into the muscle tissue, um, which got me thinking that, you know, for, for hypertrophy purposes, perhaps jumping into an ice bath straight after a training session is not a good idea because it, it could blunt um, these effects. So give me a little more information. Were they taking an oral dose of something and then looking at muscle uptake? Right. Yeah. Whey protein, uh, post-exercise, looking at MPS, and it was blunted by ice therapy. One of the things we know for sure is that an ice bath would slow down gut motility. So my guess is they simply, their gut, their gastric emptying, their gut motility, they're just not absorbing it very fast. Are there any, any ways of doing the opposite? Any hacks or, or sort of things, sauna or heat, the opposite that could increase the uptake of, of amino acids? The first thing that comes, I mean, obviously you can put it in IV and that would be quicker. Um, You could give free amino acids versus complex proteins. Uh, Don't give it with fiber. Don't give it with fat. Don't give it with things that slow down gastric emptying. So all those things may make a difference. But to your point or the discussion we had earlier, what we're looking for is area under the curve. And so we have to get them. We have to get to a level. We have to go from about 100 micromolar plasma concentration to 300 micromolar to trigger the system. So 
if you have a flat system that goes up to 200 and lasts for five hours, that's not useful. So you've got to get up to 300 and then you want it to last for a while. Um, mm -hmm. The thing that we also know is that protein synthesis in the muscle will shut down after about two to two and a half hours, even if leucine's still up. So there is something called muscle full or refractory period that once muscle runs for a while, it stops. My research, research by Lane Norton uh, and Gabe Wilson in my lab suggested that it's an ATP thing, that the muscle is actually burning so much ATP with uh, protein synthesis that it just has to stop. One more thing, one more thing before we leave that. The other thing that we know for sure, though, is once you trigger protein synthesis with muscle in muscle with leucine, you have to have all the other amino acids to make it run. So giving free leucine and triggering mTOR isn't very useful. You have to have the rest of the meal to go with it. Are there any other compounds? So other than the leucine being important and then the rest of the essential amino acids, are there any other compounds that you can supplement um, that would be important, um, would, be, uh, would work in this process of enhancing muscle protein synthesis? Well, the one that, the one that is widely used and has been he heavily studied is creatine, um, which clearly can improve muscle mass and strength. Um, Interestingly, nobody really has a very clear idea of what the mechanism of that is. <laughs> As we've talked, it has the outcome. We can measure strength and muscle. Seems to be good. Uh, doesn't seem to have any side effects. So I would say it's the one supplement that has totally positive effects from use for people who are looking to gain mass or strength. How does testosterone levels play does does that interact at all with with this process we're talking about here sure so the hormones the the steroid hormones definitely increase capacity they tend to so so we've been talking about protein synthesis regulated at the initiation level so this is at the point where we're actually putting the amino acids together <laughs> based on an R mrna Testosterone tends to change the capacity level. It changes the amount of ribosomes that are around. It changes the amount of gene transcription that's going on. You have more messenger RNA. So it tends to work at the transcriptional level and the capacity level, where leucine tends to work at the translational initiation level. So definitely it ha has an effect, um, you know, it affects every tissue, so there is a risk to hormone, you know, steroid hormones. That's why they're illegal for the most part. Yeah, I was more um, interested in like if, if someone had low testosterone levels and yeah. they were doing their resistance training, would, would they have an impaired ability to synthesize new muscle tissue? Yeah, I would, I would think that's the case. And that's probably one of the reasons why it's harder for a 55 or 60-year-old to gain muscle mass than it is for a 20-year-old. You know, 20-year-olds mm -hmm. are still pretty anabolic, and if they start lifting weights, they'll typically put on muscle mass. 60-year-old starts doing it, it's really hard to put, 
as a, as a 70 year old, I'll vouch for it's really hard to put on muscle mass. I'm sure you're doing pretty well in that department with all the information that you have. Um, we, we spoke a little bit before, we're, we're sort of coming to the end here. Um, there's a, a clinical condition that we didn't cover, um, chronic kidney disease. So often in this protein discussion, um, kidney health comes up and, and I think there's sort of two, two sections to this. There's one um, that, that says, you know, high protein diets are bad for people with chronic kidney disease. And then there's the, the next section, which is that high protein diets are just bad for kidneys in general. And, you know, often you hear of the, the young person who went to see their doctor and their doctor found out that they were eating a high protein diet and they told them, no, that's going to be terrible for your kidneys. And um, they scared their parents and, um, and, you know, the parents told them to change their diet. So is there any truth to this? Do we need to be worried about um, protein intake at these levels that you're sort of recommending um, with regards to our kidney health? Um, so the simple answer is no. Um, so where does it come from? Basically, we know that people who have end-stage renal disease, kidney failure, uh, have to reduce solutes. Their kidney's not working. So whether that's sodium and potassium or whether that's nitrogen, the kidneys just simply aren't working. So you have to reduce, you know, salt intake and nitrogen intake. The question then becomes, does protein cause it? And that has been pretty clearly shown not to be the case. In fact, the, diet, the National Academy of Sciences, when they were putting together DRI, specifically concluded that low protein diets actually are a bigger risk to kidney failure than high protein diets. Okay, so we're the opposite. Now we get into the situation where somebody has renal problems. Is it stage one? They have low re kidney function, stage two, stage three, stage four is failure, stage five failure. Um, that's an ongoing debate. Uh, we know that when you go from a low protein diet to a higher protein diet, the kidney actually becomes more efficient. You will clear the nitrogen out of the blood quicker on a high protein diet than you do on a low protein diet. The glomerular filtration rate actually goes up. So in a kidney situation, let's say you have stage two and you're, you've dropped your filtration rate down into 60, 70 range or something. Now, what should you do? Basically, if you lower your protein level, the kidney will shrink in size and your GFR will go down. So most people now who really are paying attention don't even consider lowering protein till at least stage three and maybe stage four. So there have been multiple reviews in the last 10 years, at least four I can think of that have specifically looked at this question and resoundingly said protein does not cause kidney damage. Okay, well, we can, we can link to those into the show notes along with many of the other studies that we've um, spoken about. Don, um, I'm conscious of your time. We've been running here for a couple hours now. Is there anything that you feel, in, at least in this discussion, relative to the things we've been speaking about that we didn't touch on that you wanted to kind of make clear or do you think we, we covered most things? No, I think that we've covered it. And I think that, you know, people 
treat protein and, and plant-based diets as an either-or thing, and I think we need to get over that. I think that a healthy diet has healthy forms of protein. They can be plant or animal, uh, and it has help it, healthy plants. There are very unhealthy plant-based diets. Um, and people then get into the issues of environment and all sorts of other things. It's important to recognize in the United States that at this point, 50% of our fruits and 25% of our vegetables are already imported. And transportation is the biggest cause of greenhouse gas in the United States. So the issue is getting correct balance about this and what do we think we're going to accomplish and not you know, not assuming that everybody's going to switch to a healthy plant-based diet, you know, that requires food skills, it requires food knowledge, nutrition knowledge that the average American doesn't have. And so we have to be careful about sort of dreaming about the unknown. Uh, doesn't mean people can't make healthy diets out of it, but uh, the average person can't and the average person won't. There's a, a few points in there that I think we could have a healthy debate on, but we may be we maybe save that for, for, for another one. The I'll, I'll send you, I'm going to send you an article on transportation that I want Love you to, to read. And, and it's, it's looking at the, the environmental footprint contribution from transport in foods uh, yeah. around the world. Um, I think you'll be surprised. The, the, in this um, data set, the contribution of greenhouse gases through transport of uh, imported foods makes up a very, very small percentage of most foods if they're coming by sea. Sure. Um, air freight becomes an issue, but that's less than 1% of foods. So I'll share that with you. Um, let's keep the dialogue open and always up for some healthy debate. But it's uh, a pleasure having you on the show. As I said at the start, I've read uh, a lot of your research over the years and um, heard great things from from Stuart and, and Lane. So really glad that we were able to connect and shed some light on, on a really important topic that I think is confusing and, and hopefully listeners today um, have some good takeaways and things that they can action and, and move towards uh, uh, a life with better health span and vitality. So uh, appreciate all the work that you're doing and, and hope that we can continue the conversation going forward. Great. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.